ಓಂ ನಮೋ ಭಗವತಿ ಶ್ರೀ ಅರುಣಾಚಲರಮನಾಯ ಒನ್ ಸಬ್ಜೆಕ್ಟ್ ವಿತ್ ಇಸ್ ಆಫ್ಟನ್ ಡಿಸ್ಕಸ್ಡ್ ಇನ್ ಕನೆಕ್ಷನ್ ವಿತ್ ಭಗವನ್ಸ್ ಟೀಚಿಂಗ್ಸ್ ಇಸ್ ಎಕಜೀವಾದ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಅ ಟಾಪಿಕ್ ವಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಕಮ್ ಅಪ್ ಫಾರ್ ಡಿಸ್ಕಷನ್ ಕ್ವೈಟ್ ಆಫ್ಟನ್ ರೀಸೆಂಟ್ಲಿ ಬಟ್ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ಅ ಟಾಪಿಕ್ ವಟ್ ಆಲ್ವೇಸ್ ಕಮ್ಸ್ ಅಪ್ ಫಾರ್ ಡಿಸ್ಕಷನ್ ಬಿಕಾಸ್ ಇಟ್ ಇಸ್ ಅ ವೆರಿ ಡೀಪ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಸಟಲ್ ಟೀಚಿಂಗ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಇಟ್ಸ್ ವೆರಿ ಈಸಿ ಟು ರೈಸ್ ಅಬ್ಜೆಕ್ಷನ್ಸ್ ಟು ಇಟ್ ಇಫ್ ವಿ ಡೋಂಟ್ ಅಂಡರ್ಸ್ಟ್ಯಾಂಡ್ ಇಟ್ ಇನ್ ದ ಬ್ರೋಡರ್ ಕಾಂಟೆಕ್ಸ್ಟ್ ಆಫ್ ಅ ದ್ವೈಟರ್ ಇನ್ ಜನರಲ್ ಆ್ಯಂಡ್ ಭಗವಾನ್ಸ್ ಟೀಚಿಂಗ್ಸ್ ಇನ್ ಪರ್ಟಿಕ್ಯುಲರ್ ಸೊ a friend recently pointed out to me several um recent comments but are objecting to this uh, teaching of bhagavan and asked me to address these so um i apologize for taking up this topic again because it is an important topic to, it's a very central part of bhagavan's teachings but it needs to be understood in in proportion in a proper context that is the basic um contention of advaita is what is expressed in the chandokya upanishad ekam eva advaitiyam that means one only without a second what is said in the chandokya upanishad was in the beginning there was one only without a second and that one only is sateva uh, existence only so only existence existed or in the next verse it says sattva eva sattva means um sat means being sattva means beingness it amounts to the same thing so existence alone is what actually exists in the beginning um the interpretation there are many different interpretations of vedanta so according to um many interpretations of vedanta that one became many so there was an actual process of tra- of transformation where the one thing that actually exists became all this multiplicity that is known as parinamavada the, the contention that there has been transformation but according to advaita not only in the beginning but always there is one only without a second because another important principle of vedanta is that um it's what is expressed by sri krishna in the second chapter of the bhagavad gita in verse 16 of the second chapter of bhagavad gita krishna says there is no existence of what does not exist and there's no non-existence of what does exist what that implies is but what exists well bhagavan often used to express it in this way this is the implication but what exists must always exist something that exists at one time and not at another time doesn't actually exist even when it seems to exist um so since in the beginning there was one one only without a second even now there is one only without a second nothing else has actually come into existence so how to account for all this multiplicity as i say most systems of vedanta um Uh, account for the appearance of multiplicity by saying that the one namely brahman has become all of this but advaita uh, um uh, sticks to the principle that there's one only without a second even now there's one only without a second so 
all this appearance of all this appearance of multiplicity is just is an unreal appearance. It's it's a mere appearance. It's not actually real. This is what is called Vivatavada. And there are many different levels of explanation within Advaita, but the one thing all Advaitins agree on, all true Advaitins agree on, is that the the, the appearance of multiplicity is just an appearance. Vivata means an appearance, an unreal appearance, an illusory appearance. So it's not, though it, there seem to be many, it is actually only the one that seems to be many. <clears throat> Bhagavan goes one step further than this. By, uh, that is, Bhagavan always, um, Bhagavan's teachings are extremely practical. So Bhagavan is always drawing out the practical implication of the teachings of Advaita. So what Bhagavan points out is, in order to have an appearance, there must be something to whom it appears. You cannot have an appearance without it appearing to something. So the very idea that there is an appearance presupposes something to which that appearance appears. So the, if multi, of all multiplicity is just an appearance, there must be something to which it appears. Many people with a superficial understanding of Advaita think all this appears to the one, Brahman. But that cannot be the case because Brahman is one only without a second. Brahman always knows itself as one only without a second. So Brahman cannot know itself as an appearance of multiplicity. Um, so Brahman as it is, is always one only without a second and always knows itself as one only without a second. So to whom does all this appearance appear? As Bhagavan clarifies, it appears only to ego. So what is this ego? And what is the relationship between ego and Brahman? Brahman is the pure awareness, the pure satchit, the pure existence awareness that is one only without a second. Ego cannot be something other than that because that alone is what exists. But ego is that, that, sorry, okay, step back, one, one step back. That one only without a second always knows its own existence. So it always knows itself as I am. I am means I exist. So Brahman always knows itself as I am. And that is why it is said, Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. Um, that is what shines as I am. The pure I am is Brahman. Ego is that same I am mixed and conflated with adjuncts. So as Bhagavan often said, I am is the truth. I am this or that is untrue. That is, I am is our existence. I am this or that is an identity, and it's a false identity. Because what we actually are, we cannot be anything other than what we actually are. So our true identity is what Bhagavan expressed as Ahamaham or Nanan, I am I. In other words, I am nothing other than I. So, but as ego, we always experience ourselves as I am this body. So ego is not, it is not other than pure awareness, but it seems to be other than pure awareness because ego, instead of experiencing itself as just I am, as ego, we always experience ourselves as I am this body. 
<laughs> so it is only in the view of ego that all this multiplicity exists, or seems to exist, rather. We can see this from our own experience. In waking a dream, we experience ourselves as a body. And consequently, we experience the appearance of all this multiplicity. That is, this body is one object in this uh, world, which consists of so many objects. You cannot have a body without a world. And you cannot, uh, so it, we, we, we only experience a world when we experience ourselves as a body. This is true both in waking and in dream. Um, in sleep, we do not experience ourselves as I am this body, and consequently we do not experience anything other than ourself. That is, sleep is truly a, an experience of one only without a second. Um, so it's only as ego that we experience this world. Bhagavan expresses this very uh, clearly in verse 4 of Uludunapadu. This is the, the, the verse where he really begins to get down to the nitty-gritty of his teachings. What he says in verse 4 is a very, very important principle. He says, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? Can what is seen be otherwise be of a different nature to, what's, to the eye that sees it? Um, he puts it more um, in a more compact way than that, but that is the implication. That is what he say, what he implies there is, but only when we experience ourselves as a form do we experience other forms. Forms here means not only physical forms. Any any phenomenon is a form. Um, anything that is in any way distinguishable from any other thing is a form. So when he says, if oneself is a form, what he means is, if we experience ourselves as a body, we will experience the world and God likewise. We will experience them as forms. When we do not experience ourselves as a body, who is there to see any forms and how? Because the, 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 the nature of what is seen will always be the same as the nature of what sees it. <laughs> He uses the term I, I there, E-Y-E, that is. He uses I there in a metaphorical sense to mean the, the knower. So if the knower knows itself as a form, as the ego does, it will know only forms. If the knower knows itself as formless, then it will know only formlessness. So he concludes that verse 4 by saying, um, oneself is the I, the infinite I. What he implies here is, when he says oneself is the I, he means ourself as we actually are, is the real I, the infinite I. He, the term he uses, the intum, infinite I, is antamilakan. Antam is a Sanskrit word that means end or limit. So what is without end or limit means it's infinite. So the infinite I, all forms are finite. That which is uh, infinite must be formless because it's not the, the infinite. For the, there's nothing other than the infinite, so it's it's not possible to distinguish the infinite from any other thing. So what we actually are is the infinite I. That implies we are our real nature is infinite awareness. Infinite awareness cannot know anything other than 
infinitude. It cannot know anything finite. It's only in the view of an awareness that sees itself as finite, sees itself as a form, but forms appear. So Bhagavan's, um, this, is a, this is a very important clarification Bhagavan has made because many people who studied Advaita, the classical Advaita texts and the commentaries on them and everything, they are surprised to be told that that which sees all this is only ego, not Brahman. They say, no, 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 it's the witness consciousness. Yes, it's the witness consciousness. What, but Sakshi Te Chaitanya is the Sanskrit word for witness consciousness. As Bhagavan pointed out, the term Sakshi is used in two senses in the, in the classical text. Sakshi means witness. Sakshi is used in some context to mean the witness in the sense of the knower of all this. In that sense, Sakshi is ego, because it's ego that knows all this. But Sakshi is also used in a deeper sense, as Bhagavan pointed out. Uh, in the deeper sense, Sakshi means sanadi. Sakshi means presence. Uh, so when it is said, for example, that uh, Brahman is Jiva Sakshi, the witness of the Jiva, or Saba Sakshi, the witness of all, it doesn't mean that Brahman is knowing the Jiva or Brahman is knowing all. It means that in the pre it's, it's the presence of Brahman that gives a semi-existence to all these things. But all these things seem to exist only in the view of ego. So in, in the view of Brahman as Brahman, there is one only without a second. In the view of Brahman as ego, all this multiplicity appears. So it's only in the view of ego that all this multiplicity appears. So, um, coming back to the basics, there's one only without a second. All multiplicity is just an appearance. But for there to be an appearance, there must be one to whom it appears. So, so long as we experience this appearance of multiplicity, we see the appearance of many we see the appearance of many jivas. That is, because we, jiva means, in this context, means ego. Because we as ego experience ourselves as a body, as a person, it seems to us that every person we see is an ego just like us. So the multiplicity of jivas is as much a part of the, um, of the appearance as um, the multiplicity of objects. That is the, the multiplicity of, of jivas. Jivas means sentient beings, beings who experience things. They are as real as all the objects we see. That is, it is often said the universe consists of chaitana and a chaitana. Chaitana means uh, consciousness. That is sentient beings in this context. A chaitana means insentient um, beings or objects. So the multiplicity of jivas is as real as the multiplicity of other objects, as real as tables and chairs and lights and walls and houses and cars and mountains and oceans and all these objects, as real as all of these, there is a multiplicity of jivas. Bhagavan doesn't deny that. But that is all part of the appearance. So at the level of what is called viviharika satya, viviharika satya means transactional reality. At the level of Vivaharika Satya, 
yes, there are many, uh, many jivas, many sentient beings, not only human, human um, sentient beings, but so many other sentient beings, cows and elephants and cats and dogs and uh, giraffes and um, fish and all, 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 all manner of birds and all manner of creatures, they, are, they appear to be just as, in, as sentient as we appear to be. That is not the ultimate truth, but at the level of Viviharika Satya, that is true. In Advaita, it is often said, it is often spoken of as if there are three levels of reality. Actually, reality is one. The, the, the ultimate reality, the Paramatika Satya, is what is called Ajata. According to Ajata, there is always one only without a second. Nothing else has ever come into existence. Nothing else has even appeared to exist. So there's a very famous verse in, um, in, uh, by Godapada in the um, Mandukya Karakas. Um, where this, whether this verse is originally a verse by um, Godapada or not is not entirely clear because it also appears in several of the minor Upanishads. So it's quite possibly a verse that he was quoting from an Upanishad. But the, the verse is, I can't remember the exact verse in Sanskrit, it begins, na nirodo na chokpati. That means there is no uh, destruction. There is no coming, and there's no coming into existence. Um, that is, why is there no destruction? Only those things that come into existence can be destroyed. Since nothing has ever actually come into existence, nothing is ever actually destroyed. So they, when he says na cha utpati, cha means and, uh, na means not, utpati means rising. So there's no rising. That means nothing has ever come into existence. Nothing has ever even appeared to it, uh, seemingly come into existence. There's no arising at all. I mean, he goes on to say there's no, um, there's no bondage. There's no one seeking liberation, and there's no one liberated. It, it, this is Paramatika Satya. This is the ultimate truth. So this is the ultimate truth of Ad, Advaita. Bhagavan has confirmed this. But, but what Bhagavan made clear is Ajata is not a teaching. Because in Ajata, there is only one, one only without a second. Nothing has ever come into existence. Therefore, nothing needs to be destroyed. There's no bondage. There's no liberation. It's, so for, in Ajata, there's neither is there anyone to be taught, nor is there anyone to teach, nor is there any need for any teaching. So Ajata is not a teaching. It is the ultimate truth. A teaching is only necessary because we experience the um, appearance of multiplicity. That's why Bhagavan begins the main text of Uludhunapadu with the words, Nam Ulahum Kandalal, because we see the world. If we didn't see the world, then there'd be no problem. Because we see the world, that is the problem. And why do we see the world? As he makes clear in verse 4, because we take ourselves to be a form, we see the world as forms. So the problem is only for ego. And ego is itself, as Bhagavan makes clear in verse 24 of Uludhanaptu, ego is not only uh, jiva, it is also bondage. It is samsara. There's no bondage or samsara other than ego. So the whole problem is ego. <clears throat> In the view of ego, 
Ajata does not seem to be the case. That is, as ego, we, we seem to have appeared as ego, and we see the appearance of all of this. So our experience as ego seems to uh, contradict the truth of Ajata. Um, but nevertheless, Ajata is the ultimate truth, because all of this is just an appearance. So in, in many, um, that, that is within Advaita, very different levels of explanation are given to suit people of different levels of understanding. So one a very typical explanation in Advaita is that there are three levels of um, reality or unre unreality. There's Paramatika Satya, that's the only real reality, the only actual reality. But in the level of unreality, there are two levels. There's Vivaharika Satya and Pratibhasika Satya. It is often said that the waking state is Vivaharika Satya. That is its transactional reality. And dream is Pratibhasika Satya. Dream is just seeming reality. That is because in many, for, for people who, who are unwilling to accept the deeper implications of Advaita, it is, it is acknowledged that there's a seeming difference <clears throat> between waking and dream. <clears throat> However, Bhagavan, because Bhagavan's teachings are very practical, he want, he, Bhagavan doesn't dilute things in this way. Bhagavan makes it very clear that what we call the waking state is just another dream. There is no difference between waking and dream. That means that Vivaharika Satya is actually Pratibhasika Satya. That is, transactional reality is actually just seeming reality. It doesn't, it, it's not real, even though it seems to be real. But, and as Bhagavan pointed out, everything that we, <clears throat> when we are dreaming, dreaming seems to be a continuity of our waking state. So, the, uh, Vivaharika Satya seems to be the case even in dream, just as Vivaharika Satya seems to be the case in waking, it seems to be the case in dream. But in both states, actually, this Vivaharika Satya is actually just Pratibhasika Satya. That means this, this transactional so-called reality is, is just a seeming reality, it's not real. So how is this relevant to this question of Ekajiva Vada? Ekajiva Vada means the contention that there's just one jiva. If, as the, one of the central contentions of deeper forms of Advaita, for example, Godapada in Mandukya Karaka, he argues very strongly that there is no difference between waking and dream, as does Bhagavan. So, from, from that perspective of that deeper explanation of Advaita, Vivaharika Satya is just Pratibhasika Satya. The transactional reality is just seeming reality. So, um, so long as we're looking outwards, we seem to be um, in a world of Vivaharika Satya. We seem to be, we, we seem, we are, we are interacting with the world. We are transacting with this world. And at this level, there seem to be a multiplicity of jivas. So, so long as we are looking outwards and behaving in this world, we, it seems to us that there are a multiplicity of of other sentient beings, and we act accordingly. But if we think more deeply about this, 
this multiplicity of jivas is a part of a multiplicity of all these phenomena. And according to Advaita, all this multiplicity is just an appearance. And it appears only, as Bhagavan made clear, it appears only in the view of ourself as ego. So though there seem to be a multiplicity of jivas, and though when we're interacting with the world, we must interact with the world as if there are a multiplicity of jivas, when we are inquiring more deeply, we must recognize all this multiplicity exists in whose view, in my view, then who am I? We need to turn our attention back within. So it is Bhagavan taught Ekajiva Vada, not in order to, um, for us to try to behave in the world as if there's only one jiva. As long as we behave in the world, there seem to be a multiplicity of jivas, we behave accordingly. Because our behavior, who is it who is behaving in the world? It's the person we seem to be. This person is as much a, a part of the appearance as all the other many jivas. So at, at that viharika level, we behave as if there are many jivas. And that is appropriate. But when we, if we want to go, if we want to know, to investigate and find out the reality of this appearance, since this appearance, since it all appears to whom? To me, then who am I? We need to investigate ourselves, the one to whom all this multiplicity appears. We cannot know the truth of this multiplicity, the underlying reality of this multiplicity, without knowing the reality of ourself. That is, without knowing the knower, we, without knowing the reality of the knower, we cannot know the reality of the known. Um, so this world, all this multiplicity, is something known by us. So who are we who know it? We need to investigate ourselves. This is why there's a verse in Gurvachaka Kavai in which Bhagavan says, <laughs> This is verse 534 of Guru Kokobai. He says, um, accepting that Jiva is only one, may the courageous one who has discernment or uh, comprehension or wisdom subside or um, penetrate in the heart, uh, implying by investigating who am I, this one Jiva. It's, those words are not there. The actual words that are there are accepting that jiva is only one. May the courageous one who has discernment subside in the heart. Uh, the implication is how do we subside in the heart? By turning our attention back within. And then he goes on to say, only to suit the mind of dull-witted uh, people in whom such discernment has not uh, yet blossomed, to sages and sacred texts, speak as if conceding that jivas are many. So, uh, what Bhagavan says here, that, that is what Bhagavan, what we need to understand from what Bhagavan says here is, the reason he teaches Ekajiva Vada is not for us to engage in arguments or to raise questions about the appearance, it is to investigate who are we, the one to whom all this multiplicity appears. Um, so, the correct application of Ekajiva Vada as taught by Bhagavan is to turn our attention within and to investigate what we are. Who am I, this one Jiva who sees all this multiplicity of Jivas? 
But so long as we're looking outwards, we need to behave in this world appropriately. So we need to behave as if there are many uh, jivas, because that's how it appears to be. Just like we don't, we don't, um, all this may be a dream, but even if we believe it's a dream, we don't for that reason uh, walk off the edge of a tall building, because we know in this dream, there is a law of gravity. If we step off a, a tall building, we're going to have a nasty fall at the bottom. So we, we behave in this world according to the seeming laws, the, the laws that seem to govern this world. So as, as, as real as the power of gravity is the, is the multiplicity of jivas. That is, it's all, it's all an appearance. It's, none of it is actually real. But so long as we experience ourselves as a, as a body, we experience ourselves as one among many jivas in this universe. So the multiplicity of jivas is true at the viviharikas level. But if we want to investigate more deeply, we need to understand that the, this, all these so-called viviharika satya, this transactional reality, is actually just pratibhaska satya. It's all just an appearance. So if we if we understand it's all just an appearance, then we should investigate who am I, the one to whom all this appears. So long as we're interacting with the world, we need to interact with the world as it appears to be. We can't, we can't, um, we can't go against the, the seeming laws that seem to govern this world. Um, so as real as all the physical laws that govern this world are the fact that there is not only a multiplicity of insentient beings, there are all insentient objects, there are also a, a, a multiplicity of seemingly sentient objects. So peep, when people raise objections about Ekajiva Bada, their objections are all in relation to the appearance. They say that who is the one Jiva? If I'm the one jiva, that means you're, you're all insentient. Yes, that is ultimately the truth, but that, that, that's not the correct application of it. So long as we see a multiplicity of people, every person, and person here means not just human person, every, every, every sentient being seems to us to be a jiva, and we have to treat them accordingly. That's why it's very important that we should be, we should be kind, caring, um, we shouldn't be cause harm. We we need to follow the the ethical principle of ahimsa, not causing harm to any living being. If someone comes to us in distress, we don't just dismiss. Oh, you're my mental projection. I'm not concerned about your distress. No, for us, that person and their distress seems to be very real. So we listen to them. We give a patient hearing to them. We we say what we can to console that person. So so long as we are interacting in this world, we have to interact as if there are a multiplicity of jivas. That we need to be very, very clear about. But that doesn't mean that that is the ultimate truth. If we want to know the ultimate truth, we need to investigate ourselves the one to whom this multiplicity of jivas appear. Um, and we, we, we shouldn't take this one jiva that we take to be, even this one jiva we take ourselves to be, who is aware of all these other jivas, even this one jiva is itself unreal. If we investigate ourselves, as Bhagavan makes clear, it will be clear that there's no such thing as ego or mind or jiva at all. So we need to understand all these things in proportion. 
there is a verse in um, in Uludunapdhanabandam, verse um, thirty nine of Uludunapdhanabandam, in which Bhagwan. Uh, uh, the whole verse is an important verse, but relevant to our present discussion, the first two lines of the verse are what are most important. That is, what Bhagavan says in this verse is, um, Advaitam endrum ahatu uraha. That means, may you always cherish or experience Advaita in the heart. Um, or podum Advaitam segel that means your podium means even once at any time do not you, you, it, we, we should not put Advaita in action why should we not put Advaita in action if we think about it it should be obvious to us in the state of Advaita there's one only without a second so who is to do what that is action implies Time. There has to be, you, you can't do an action if there's no time. Time is something second. Time is something that appears in waking and dream, it disappears in sleep. So time is not real. So all action is true only at the Vibhaharika level. So only at the level of action, of, um, and in Vibhaharika, there seems to be a, a, the appearance of multiplicity. So we, it's, it's impossible to put a dvaita in action. If we imagine we are putting a dvaita in action, we haven't understood what is a dvaita. If we understand what is a dvaita, there's no possibility of putting it in action. So in the level of action, we should act as if all this multiplicity is real. That's, that's the only practical way of, of, of living. Just like as I said, we don't walk off the tall, top of a tall building. We don't walk out in the road in front of a... Uh, fast approaching car or bus or something. We know we, we abide by the rules of the appearance. Uh, if this may all be a dream, but we have to act in the dream in an appropriate manner. As Bhagavan often used to say, in a dream, the um, uh, dream food satisfies dream hunger. Both the hunger and the food both are unreal, but in the dream they seem to be real. The hunger seems to be real, and the food that quenches your hunger seems to be real. So at that level, at the level of Vivaharika, we have to act as if there are a multiplicity of jivas. We need to treat all other seeming jivas with all due care and concern and respect. So there's actually no contradiction between Ekajiva Vada and behaving appropriately in the world. But the questions, that the, some of the comments I was asked to address I will just read some extracts from them and reply to them in the context of what I've said. The first one was someone asked, who is it? This is a comment made on one of the videos where I, I was talking about this Ekajiva Vada. Who is he trying to convince? Why bother trying to convince minds that only seem to exist? His behavior, i.e., appearing here and giving talks to us is not in sync with the ontologies he's putting forward. Um, I hope it should be clear why this is not actually a contradiction, because so long as we're, we're interacting with the, in the world, obviously we don't go and, to, and um, 
and talk about Bhagavan's teachings to those who are not interested. But when people come and ask us questions about Bhagavan's teachings, we share what we understand. We share what we have learned from Bhagavan's teaching with them. So um, it's not a matter of trying to convince anyone. It's a matter of if, if, if people ask questions and try to understand Bhagavan's teachings, if they want to understand Bhagavan's teachings in a proper perspective, then we need to explain why Bhagavan taught Ekajiva Vada and how this Ekajiva Vada should be applied. The only correct application of Ekajiva Vada is to turn our attention within. So long as we're looking outwards, there seem to be a multiplicity of jivas. So if other people come and ask us uh, and want to understand why Bhagavan taught that there's only one jiva, we have to explain it accordingly. Um, so though it may seem but um, explaining these things is not in sync with the ontology we're explaining. Um, it's actually no contradiction because ultimately, we, the one who needs to be convinced, we need to convince ourselves when we discuss these things with others, what we are saying is not only for the benefit of others, it's also for the benefit of ourselves. We're trying to remind ourselves what Bhagavan has taught us and the aim of what Bhagavan has taught us, which is to turn within. So if we understand Ekajiva Vada correctly, we will understand the correct application of Ekajiva Vada is not to look outwards and ask, um, well, what about this person? Are they not sentient? Is this person not sentient? Is that? No. Yes, they all seem to be sentient. But to whom do they seem to be sentient? To me, who am I? We need to turn our attention back within. Um, because all the multiplicity of... Um, of jivas appears only in the view of, a, of one. Um, in fact, we can make sense of Advaita only if we accept Ekajiva Vada, because if all multiplicity is uh, an appearance, that must include the multiplicity of jivas. And that in order for there to be appearance, there must be one to whom it appears. And who is that one? I am that one. So who am I? We need to turn our attention back to ourselves. Um, Sometimes people ask me, well, I'm sentient, then when, are you saying that you're not sentient? Of course, so long as you see I and you, oneself and others, yes, there seems to be sentience. But we need to, it's when we, it's for turning within, but we need, by turning within, but we need to apply this teaching, not by trying to apply it outwardly in action. So outwardly, Yes, we have to accept that the appearance of multiplicity and that appearance of multiplicity includes the appearance of a multiplicity of jivas and we have to behave accordingly. Another person who commented uh, wrote, this is nonsense. Either there are other minds, call it the one mind com compartmentalized, who perceive this body when this body perceives them or there are not. Yes, logically, there either are other minds or there are not. So long as we're looking outwards, we need to behave as if there are other minds. When we want to turn within and find out the reality of all this appearance of multiplicity, then we need to accept that there's only one jiva and there's only one to whom all this multiplicity appears. So who am I, the one to whom all this multiplicity appears? So though it may seem to be a contradiction if we understand clearly and correctly not only what Bhagavan has taught us but 
how he expects us to apply what, in, uh, apply what he has taught us, we will see that there's no contradiction. When we're looking outwards, there are in effect a multiplicity of jivas. But this multiplicity of jivas appears to whom? To me. Who am I? We need to turn our attention back towards ourselves to investigate who we are. And then the person goes on to say, in the dream there are no entities actually see the dream body that is a, the apparent instrument through which awareness sees them. They behave as if they do, but they do not. If waking and dream be the same, then all apparent others are like characters on a TV, the one watching the screen being the only body perceiving anything. How can there be any middle ground if Ekajiva is true? Well, so long as we are dreaming, there seem to be a multiplicity of jivas. So in the dream, we behave as if there are other jivas. It's only when we wake up from the dream that we recognize, oh, it was all a dream. All the other people I saw in my dream were just my, my own um, mental fabrication. Not only all the other people in the dream, the person I mistook myself to be in a dream was as much a part of the of, of uh, mental fabrication, as much part of the dream as all the other people in the dream. The dreamer is not the person we take ourselves to be in the dream. The dreamer is we who take ourselves to be a person in the dream. So we always need to distinguish ego or jiva from the person ego or jiva mistakes itself to be. The, the person we mistake ourselves to be is a part of the dream. We who mistake ourselves to be that person are the dreamer. That distinction is very, very important if we are to go within and investigate what we actually are. And then the, the same comment continues. If it's a com concept that uh, to be used as practice, then fine. But there's a high risk of insanity that comes along with it. That is, if we understand correctly, Bhagavan's teachings are deep and subtle. If we, we need to think about them carefully and understand how to apply them correctly. So there's no risk of insanity if we understand them correctly. Only an insane person, only a person who is already insane would apply, would understand it in any other way. So it, we cannot blame the teaching for causing insanity. Insanity may cause us to misunderstand the teaching, but the teaching doesn't cause the insanity. And then the person goes on to say, if ultimately true, then Ramana is no different to the guy of a burger joint in my dream last night. Only he is telling me I'm dreaming, while the burger joint guy is not. But this sentence begins, if ultimately true. No, Ekajiva Vada is not ultimately true. What is ultimately true is only Ajata. According to Ajata, there's no Jiva at all. Uh, Ekajiva Vada is taught to us in order to, um, in order to uh, help us to find our way out of this appearance of, of, um, of Vivaharika Satya and to return to what is ultimately true, which is one only without a second. So Ekajiva Vada is, has a, it, it, is, it is not just a, a philosophical concept. It is a practical teaching in order to help us to turn within to investigate what we actually are. And regarding the comment, then Ramana is no different from the guy at the burger joint in my dream last night. 
in a sense, that is true. But as this person goes on to say, only he is telling me I'm dreaming, while the burger joint guy is not. This is the difference between Guru and others. Guru comes, that though Guru is a part of our dream, Guru, that, that is not Guru is a part of our dream, the form in which Guru appears is a part of our dream. Bhagavan used an analogy to illustrate this. Um, <clears throat> there is a, a belief, but um, elephants are not afraid of anything except lions. And they are so terrified of lions, that if an elephant dreams of a lion, the shock of seeing a lion in its dream will cause it to wake up. The lion that it sees in its dream is unreal, but the waking up is real. Likewise, the name and form of Guru is unreal, but though it's unreal, it brings about the real awakening. That is, Guru, though Guru appears in name and form, Guru is not that name and form. Guru is our own reality. Uh, Guru is what is shining in our heart as I am, our own existence. Guru appears outwardly in name and form in order to tell us the term within. <laughs> Another analogy Bhagavan used in this context is a, a tame deer being used as a decoy to capture a wild deer. So because we mistake ourselves to be a body, Guru appears as a body just like us in order to tell us the term within. So the name and form of Bhagavan is as unreal as all other names and forms. But what is shining through that name and form is the Guru, and what he is telling us is the truth. He's pointing our attention back at ourselves. If we turn our attention back at ourselves, then we will wake up. So, though in terms of names and forms, uh, Bhagavan is as much a name and form as the, the burger guy joint in the in, who appeared in a dream, but the difference is he tell he points us, he shows us the way to get out of this dream, to get out of this uh, state in which all this multiplicity appears to be real. And then another comment that someone wrote in this uh, connection, a similar type of comment, no teacher of Ramana's teachings ever give a straight answer to this question. I've asked all, no response, just jibber-jabber. Here's the question once again. Being that the one who one writing this, ego jiva, perceives the world, how can eka jiva be true and the one writing this not be the only jiva, the only one that is having an apparent experience? That is, the one who is writing is, the, is not the jiva. But the jiva is the one who is aware of itself. I am this person who is, that is, what is, the one who is writing is a person. Jiva is that which mistakes itself to be the person who is writing and who is perceiving a world. And yes, that jiva is the only jiva there is. Um, in the experience, none of us experience more than one experiencer. It seems to us but all the other people we see in a dream are experiencing this dream just like we are. But actually, we, are only, we only ever experience one experiencer, and that is ourself. So the one experiencer, the one who experiences all this, is the one jiva. But in the view of this one jiva, there are a multiplicity of other jivas. 
So, so long as we're looking outwards, we need to behave as if there are multiplicity of other jivas. Though all those other jivas appear only in the view of this one jiva, the experience, the one in whose view they all seem to exist. And then this person goes on to say, Ekajiva would mean that Michael James is a character in my dream, devoid of any real internal content, not actually living a life somewhere. That is, so long as you are dreaming, Michael James and every other person in this dream seems to be sentient, just like you. That is how it appears to us. But so dismissing other people as just a character in our dream is missing the point. The point is, if all this is a dream, then who is the one who is, who, who is dreaming all this? I am. So who am I? We need to turn our attention back at ourselves. So long as we're dreaming, so long as we're looking outward, there seems to be a multiplicity. What our aim should be to turn within and see who am I the one to whom all this multiplicity appears. This is the correct application of Ekaji Bhavada. Otherwise, we are just, we are just reducing it to a, a philosophical concept that, to argue about who is the one jiva and everything. That is, we, we're totally missing the point. Um, then this person goes on. If there's one dreamer, only that dreamer experiences anything at all. Yes, that is true. From the, at the Pratibhasika level, but at the Vivaharika level, so long as we, we seem to be in a transactional world, there seem to be a multiplicity, and we need to behave in the transactional world accordingly. Even though the deeper truth is, all this is a dream, I am a dreamer of it. I means the one who is experiencing all this. I doesn't refer to, yeah, to Michael, it refers to the one who is experiencing all this. Um, if Ekjiva is correct, how can it be otherwise? Yes, correct. If not absolutely true, it's simple deception. No, it, as I said, it is not absolutely true. Ekajiva Vada is never intended to be absolutely true. It is, it is, Ekajiva Vada is, is an, we can say an intermediate truth. It is a useful thing to understand in order to encourage us to turn within, to investigate who am I, the one to whom all this multiplicity of jivas appear? Uh, if we investigate ourselves keenly enough, then we will merge back in our source, and then only we will experience the absolute truth, which is that there never has been any jiva at all. Or never, there's never been a, a jiva or a, a body or a mind or a world or anything whatsoever. That is the absolute truth. Ekajiva Vada is, is an intermediate uh, truth in order to help us to turn back within to investigate what we are in order to find out what is the ultimate truth, in order to experience that ultimate truth for ourselves. And who will experience that ultimate truth? It is not the one jiva. The ultimate truth will shine only when this one jiva is, loses itself in its own reality, that which is one without a second, the pure awareness I am. Um, no matter how you dress it up, it is solipsism. Yes, it is. What Bhagavan teaches us is solipsism, but it's a very much deeper and more nuanced solipsism. It is not, it is not social solipsism. What Bhagavan teaches us is metaphysical solipsism. As I hope I've made clear in what I've been explaining so far, 
metaphysical solipsism, Ekajiva Vada, does not imply social solipsism. From a social point of view, yes, there are multiplicity of jivas, and we have to behave accordingly. But if we want to in, uh, know the reality underlying this appearance of multiplicity, we need to know the reality of the one in whose view this multiplicity appears. So we need to investigate ourselves. That is the purpose of Ekajiva Vada. So th th these are comments that I was asked to reply to. There's one other thing I was asked to reply to, which is indirectly, uh, one other comment I was asked to reply to, which is e not directly related to this, but it is indirectly related. That is, there was a video made some time ago where um, I would, um, there was a, there's, um, he sadly passed an hour away now. There was a person called, um, um, uh, Kalistos Ware. He's a was a, a Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox Metropolitan, um, and uh, he was an Oxford theologian, Oxford or Cambridge, I think Oxford, uh, but he passed away uh, recently. But anyway, on that um, on that uh, in that video, there was some discussion about uh, uh, Christianity and Advaita. And someone wrote a comment on this recently. I get that there is some overlap between Christianity and Advaita. The Bible explicitly says I am is a name for God. But I also think they are distinctly different. Advaita doesn't believe in eternal individual souls, whereas Christianity does in union with God. Am I right in stating this? Yes. That is... Um, Though Christianity talks about individual, uh, eternal souls, it also says souls are created. Whatever is created is not eternal, because eternal doesn't mean everlasting. Eternal means what is beyond time. So uh, the eternal souls that Christianity talks about, it is the idea that souls have been created by God and will exist forever. Forever means implies time. But uh, what is truly eternal is beyond time. Advaita doesn't, Advaita doesn't believe, Advaita does not teach that there's an eternal individual soul. Advaita teaches that there's one jiva in whose view all these things appear, but that one jiva is not real. That one jiva is ego. And ego, it even... We can see even from our experience, ego is not eternal. Ego appears in waking a dream, it disappears in sleep. So how can that which ceases to exist in sleep and seems to exist only in waking a dream be eternal? Obviously, it's not eternal. It's a mere appearance. But in order to, uh, in order to know for ourselves that ego, which is what we now seem to be, is just an appearance, we need to investigate ourselves. We need to investigate who am I. If we investigate ourselves keenly enough, then we will see the eternal reality that underlies the appearance of this ego. That is, ego, as Bhagavan made clear, ego or soul, it's jiva, is that which is aware of itself as I am this body. Whereas the reality of this jiva is the pure awareness I am. So I am without adjuncts, 
without being conflated with anything other than itself, is the reality. The same I am, seemingly mixed and conflated with adjuncts, is what is called the ego or soul. But even when it's seemingly mixed, it is actually never mixed, it is ever pure. That is, the, the pure I am remains ever pure. It's only in the view of ourself as ego that I am seems to be mixed and conflated with adjuncts. So from the perspective of Brahman, the perspective of Atmasarupa, ourself as we actually are, we are never aware of ourself as I am this body. It's only in the view of ego that we're aware of ourself as I am this body. So yes, this is a fundamental difference between um, Christian theology and Advaita. But this is a difference also between Advaita and most other, um, most other systems of Vedanta. That is, Vedanta has been interpreted in many different ways by many different schools of thought. Most of the other schools of thought uh, take Jiva to be eternal or if not most of them, many of them take it, the jiva to be eternal, and the highest state for the jiva is to, to be eternally in service of God. That is the goal of most, um, most systems of Vedanta, and also other systems of thought, like Shaiva Siddhanta and so many others. Uh, it's only in Advaita, but, um, but uh, it is uh, taught that the Jiva is not actually real. Jiva is nothing other than Brahman in reality. Jiva Brahmaikya, the oneness of Jiva and Brahman. But when it is said Jiva and Brahman are one, Tattvamasi, you are that, it doesn't mean that Jiva as Jiva is Brahman. Jiva bereft of its adjuncts is Brahman. Uh, Brahman seemingly mixed and conflated with uh, adjuncts is Jiva. So, in as Bhagavan says very clearly in um, in um, verse twenty four of Upadesha Undia, Irkum ekal isa Jiva gal oruporle arba. By existing nature, God and soul are just one substance. When he says one substance, he means in their ex in their existence, in their their their, their ex in their existing nature. What he refers to as existing nature is what he indicated in the previous verse: the oneness of uh, existence and awareness. That is what we actually are: is such it pure existence awareness. That is the one substance. And in, in, that one, in that existing nature, we and God are one. What makes us seem to be different, as he says, is upadi unave veru. Only adjunct awareness is different. That is, what makes us seem to be different from God is that we have identified ourselves with a set of adjuncts as I am this body, I am this person. That's what separates us. But in our actual existence as I am, we and God are one. So the reality of the soul is eternal. The reality of the soul is God. The reality of the soul is that pure I am. Uh, but as, as, a, as an individual, as a separate being, that what makes us seem separate from God is only our rising as ego and consequently take identifying ourselves with a set of adjuncts, namely this person we now take ourselves to be.
Um, sorry, that was quite a long explanation, but I hope that was a useful explanation to try to put this in proportion. Oh, there's one other thing, actually. I, I remember two, one other thing that I wanted to say in this connection. I'll just say it. Um, just to, so that we understand the importance of seeing these things in a balanced way. In the first line of verse 5 of Arunachashtakam, Bhagavan says, Mani Galil Saradena We Doru Nana Matun Doru Oruvanam Maruvine Nidan. What that means is, um, like the thread in a string of gems, you alone shine as the one, the one meaning the one real substance, one reality in each soul and in each of the many matters. Matters means religions or spiritual philosophies or systems of belief. So <clears throat> here Bhagavan talks about, when he talks of weird Dorum, Dorum is a, Doru is a, um, it's a suffix that implies each and every. So in each and every soul, he is the one reality shining. That is, he's the. So here Bhagavan is talking as if there's a multiplicity of souls. And likewise, in, um, in verse 3 of Amma Vide, Bhagavan uh, says, um, he begins by saying, without knowing oneself, if one knows whatever else, so what? If one has known oneself, then what exists to know? And then he goes on to say, when one knows in oneself that self, which is the light without separation in separate sentient beings, that is, he talks of bina viagal. The bina viagal means the separate souls, the separate sentient beings, the separate jivas. But the light that is devoid of separation, shiny in all those separate souls, um, when one knows that self in oneself, um, so we ourselves are the one uh, light that shines without separation in all the different sentient beings. So when we look outwards, we see a multiplicity of jivas just like us. But the reality in all those jivas, that which is shiny as I in all those jivas, that is what is shiny in our self as I. And when we know that, that one, but shiny in our self as I, um, he, he goes on to say, within oneself, the shiny of oneself will shine forth. In other words, when we, when we turn our attention away from this appearance of multiplicity, to look back within, to see the one that is shiny within us as I, which is the same one that is seemingly shining on all others as I, then when we know that I as it is, it will shine forth um, like a uh, flash of lightning. And we, we, we as a jiva will be consumed by that, and that alone will remain. And he says, Arul Vilasame, this is the shiny of grace. Aha Vinasame, the annihilation of ego. Imba Vikasame, the blossoming of happiness. So our aim is not to maintain that there's only one jiva. So long as we're looking outward, there seems to be a multiplicity of jivas. If we turn within to 
investigate the reality of the jiva in whose view all those other jivas, this jiva in whose view all those other jivas appear, then we will be swallowed in the light of pure awareness that is ever shining in our heart as our own existence. That same light is what it, we see shining in all others. So Bhagavan, when, though Bhagavan teaches Ekajiva Vada, he teaches it in, in a very refined and nuanced way. It is not for application in action. As, yeah, that is, it, Bhagavan never implied social solipsism. So long as we are in, so long as we are interacting with this world, we're in the level of transactional reality. So all the other jivas are just as real as the jiva we seem to be. If we want to know the reality of all these multiple jivas, we first need to know the reality of this one jiva in whose view all those other jivas appear. If we turn our attention within to know the reality of this one jiva, this one jiva will be swallowed and the entire appearance that exists only in the view of this one jiva will be swallowed along with it. And then the one only without a second alone will remain as it always is. So we, we, we when we understand Bhagavan's teachings, we need to be ready to have a, a very subtle and nuanced understanding. Then only we can understand him correctly. Sorry, I, that was a very long explanation, but I hope it's useful. Um, and my voice seems to have held out, so I should be fit to answer questions. If anyone has any questions to ask? Um, there is one question. Um, it's a bit long, so I'll read it out carefully. I'm very confused about karma, yoga, and liberation. Karma, yoga, that is to, to fulfill duties, take majority of time and energy away from Atma Vichara. Plus, if as per the Advaita of Shankaracharya, karmana amritat asha na asti. Then karma yoga seems like a futile seems like a futile effort and maybe even delaying realization that is liberation. In prarabdha by design causing this, which ultimately means even liberation will be determined by karma. It seems like a cash twenty-two since self-realization is the only means to drop from the karma cycle. Instead, should we not dedicate our life only to Atma Vichara to achieve self-realization. But again, the sin of omission might not let it happen. Catch 22 again. Okay. Michael, I, is this clear? Uh, or I, 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 think I, I think I understand the question. Actually, uh, I, I, someone sent me this uh, question as an email a day or two ago, but I haven't had time to reply to it. But this is a good opportunity to reply to it. That is... Firstly, um, karma yoga is not doing one's duty. Karma yoga has a much deeper meaning. And Bhagavan has made it clear that karma yoga, karma is, uh, karma yoga is not a, separate, a path separate from bhakti. If we read Upadesha Undia carefully, this is very clear. That is, um, in Upadeshundia, in verse um, verse two, Bhagavan says that the cause for um, for our falling in the ocean, great ocean of action, is the vasanas. 
Vasanas means our inclinations, because we are inclined to seek pleasure in vishayas, in objects, in phenomena. We act accordingly, and so under the <clears throat> the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas are what are called agamya, and those uh, agamya bear fruit and. Um, and the fruit we experience is impermanent, but though the, the fruit uh, ceases when we experience it, the inclination to go on doing the same action continues. So karma does not give liberation, is Bhagavan's conclusion in verse 2. Then in verse 3 he says, action done for God, that, that is nishkarmiya karma done for God. Nishkarmiya karma means action, but is not done for, uh, for the fulfillment of desires, but is done just for God. That implies for the love of God, will purify the mind and show the way to liberation. So karma yoga, it's only if the actions are done without desire. But they, no act, any action has to have a motive. We we don't we don't act with no motive. So, if if we are to act without desire, we need to act for the love of God. So the actions we do for the love of God, without expecting any uh, reward, therefore, uh, for uh, reward for doing those actions, that is karma uh, yoga. That and then Bhagavan goes on to describe what are the different types of karma we can do. We can do actions by, there are three instruments of action, body, speech, and mind. So in the fourth verse, he says, this is certain. Uja, Japa, and Dhyana are actions of body, speech, and mind, respectively. And in this order, each is superior to the previous one. So his implication is, the actions we do for the love of God by body are puja. The actions that we do for the love of God by um by speech are japa, and the actions we do by the, for the love of God by mind are dhyana, or meditation. But the key thing is doing it for the love of God. In the Tamil version of verse 3, he simply says, kartanukakum nishkarmiya karma. That means nishkarmiya karma done for God. The implication is done for the love of God. And in the Malayalam version, he says, Ishwara priti and I. That, that means he, it, he says it explicitly for the love of God. So, um, it, the, the, the karma yoga is karma yoga only if we're acting for the love of God, not for what we can get from it. So people say, oh, I'm doing my duty, I'm serving my family, I'm earning for my family, therefore this is karma yoga. If you're doing it just to satisfy your family or just to satisfy yourself, that is not karma yoga. You're doing it only for the love of God, then only is it true karma yoga. And um, whatever actions we do by the body, um, as Bhagavan says in the fifth verse, that is, uh, any action done with the attitude, but all the eight forms, the eight forms refers to the five elements, sun, moon, and sun, moon, fire, and jiva. So in other words, the whole of creation, if we consider all these eight forms to be forms of God and uh, worship and do uh, worship accordingly, that is good worship of God. So that means anything we do in this world, if we are doing it for the love of God 
and not for anything benefit we can get from it, not because we uh, others will appreciate, oh, you're doing very good work, or not because we're pleasing our family or anything like that. We're doing it just for the love of God. That is Nishkarmiya Karma. That will purify the mind. But more, more efficacious in purifying the mind than the actions done by body are the actions done by speech. And more efficacious than the actions done by speech are the actions done by mind. So Bhagavan shows how the early stages of the path of bhakti, where we are doing puja, japa, and dhyana for the love of God, this is the karma yoga. But uh, bhakti doesn't stop with just doing actions, because as he says in verse 8, rather than meditating on God as something other than ourselves, he doesn't say it in so many words, he says rather than anya bhava, Anya means what is other. Baba in this context means meditation. Rather than Anya Baba, Ananya Baba, in which he is I, is best among all. Ananya means what is not other. So the implication of this verse is rather than meditating on God as if he's something other than oneself, meditating on him as not other than oneself with the understanding that he is I. In other words, meditating on nothing other than I is best among all. So long as we're meditating on God as something other than ourselves, that is an action, because our attention is going away from ourselves towards something else. So that is a mental activity. But meditating on nothing other than ourselves, with the understanding that we ourselves are God, but God is that which is shining in our heart as I, that is not an action, because the, out, the attention paid to anything else is an action. Whereas when attention is directed back towards ourselves, the doer of that action will subside. So uh, self-attentiveness is not an action. It is a cessation of action, a subsidence of action. Not only a subsidence of action, a subsidence of the doer of action, the karta. So in the next verse, verse 9, he says, um, uh, by the strength of meditation, being in Satvava, which transcends Bhavana, is Parabhakti Tattva. What he means by that is, when he says by the strength of meditation, the meditation he's referring to is the meditation he extolled in the previous verse, namely Ananya Bhava, meditation on nothing other than oneself. In other words, that's a, it's another name for Atmavichara or self-attentiveness, attending only to self. By the strength of that self-attentiveness, being in Satvava, Satvava means our real, in the state of being, which transcends Bhavana. Here, Bhavana means meditation in the sense of mental activity. So being in that state of being, but transcends all mental activity, that is Parabhakti Tattva. So the uh, path of Bhakti and Karma Yoga are one and the same up to the point where we are still meditating on God as something other than ourselves. But when we turn our, when we come to understand that God is not something other than ourselves, but that which is shining in our heart as I, and accordingly turn our attention within, that is when the action comes to an end. And we, we, we subside in the state of being, the Satvava, and being in that state of being, which transcends all mental activity, by the strength of self-attentiveness, 
that is supreme, that is Parabhakti Tattva, su supreme devotion. So, uh, according to Bhagavan, uh, Bhakti is not a separate path. I'm sorry, Karma is not a separate path. It is a, it is a the preliminary stages of the path of Bhakti. Before Bhakti matures into the, into Vichara. When Bhakti matures into Vichara, then the action comes to an end and the doer of the action subsides in the state of being. And then he concludes that first series of 10 verses by saying, Be, being having subsiding in this place from which we rose and being thus, um, it's a bit difficult to translate into English because in Tamil, subsiding in the state of being is um, the subsiding is a is a adverbial participle, whereas the being is a verbal noun. So the actual subject is being in the state of, of in the place from which we rose, even place having subsided there. That is karma and bhakti. That is yoga and jnana. So ultimately, the the, the culmination of all four paths, the path of, of karma, the path of bhakti, the path of yoga, and the path of jnana, they all culminate in this state of just being in the place from which we rose. In other words, being in our own state of being, a state of pure I am. So um, this is the first thing to understand, but this this popular notion there is nowadays that karma is doing one's duty this is a very very crude and uh, incorrect understanding of karma of karma yoga but that is karma yoga has to be nishkarmiya it has to be done without desire why would we do any action without desire without some motive there has to be a motive so other than desire, the only other motive can be love of God. So we, we need to act for the love of God. Yes, you can make doing your duty an act of love of God. Okay, God, you've given me this family, you've given me these responsibilities, let me do this work for the love of you. However, it's important to understand that whatever actions we do by mind, speech, and body cannot prevent us attending to ourselves because we don't cease to exist when we act. In order to act, we must exist. So the awareness I am is implied in every action. I, I am working, I am doing this physical work, I'm doing this vocal work, I'm doing this mental work. Whether we are acting by body, speech or mind, I am. So that I am is the underlying reality of all these actions we do. So. If we have love to subside back within, we can hold on to I am, even in the midst of whatever actions we're doing. So um, that should be our aim. So it's not a matter of either I do my duty or I do Atma Vichara. Whatever, whatever actions this body was brought into existence to do, it will be made to do in accordance with Prarabdha. That is in order to, what we are destined to experience is determined by Pararabdha. So we cannot experience anything that we are not destined to experience, and we cannot avoid experiencing what we are destined to experience. 
But in order to experience what we're destined to experience, we will be made to act in certain ways because our own actions are part of, are, are necessary for many things to be experienced. So those actions that are necessary in order for us to experience whatever we are destined to experience will be made to do those actions. So action is not an obstacle to uh, self-investigation because self-investigation, we are not investigating, we are not concerned with doing, we're concerned with being. There could not be any doing without being. We must exist in order to do something. So let us hold on to our being, to our existence, I am, and let the actions of body and mind go on in accordance with destiny. We're not concerned about that. Our concern should be holding on to I am. That is the highest form of, as Bhagavan said, that is hold, to the extent to which we hold on to I am, we thereby, by the strength of that, meditation on I am, we hold, we subside into the state of the pure I am, the state of being, Satbhava, and being in that state, that is Parabhakti Tattva. So we, uh, the doer of action, the, the instruments of action are, are mind, speech, and body. So long as we are facing outwards, we identify ourselves with this mind, speech, and body. I am thinking, I am talking, I am doing. We, 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 that sense of doership is there. But when we turn our attention back within and hold on to I am, we are separating ourselves from these um, instruments of action. So to the extent to which we separate ourselves from the instruments of action by holding on to our being, we, the doership will subside and we will remain in the state of being. So there's absolutely no contradiction at all between whatever actions we may do in accordance with our prarabdha and holding on to self-attentiveness, which is atma-vichara. So I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. If the person who asked the question wants to ask anything more, please feel free to do so. If anything I've said is not clear. I think it was quite clear, Michael. Uh, the next question is, uh, why is non-duality not monism? You have said all is one is not the same as one only without a second. Thank you kindly. Non-duality is a form of monism, but not all monism is non-duality. Because non-duality says well, that is the, the pure non-duality, Advaita Vedanta, the basic contention is there is one only without a second. Whereas different systems, of, there are many different systems of monism. Monism simply means all is one. But in Advaita, there's no all, there is only one. That is the difference. So Advaita is certainly a form of monism, but it's the most radical form of monism. It's a complete denial of multiplicity. It says all, all, or multiplicity is just an appearance. So there are different systems, there are different forms of monism. One form of monism is what is called materialism or physicalism. That is, many people nowadays believe everything can be explained by, ultimately be explained in terms of physics. So all things are physical. 
So that is a, that's a type of monism. Everything reduces down to physical things. You may be able to reduce it down to energy or whatever it is. I don't know. There's so many different theories within physics. Uh, um, and they'll never reach any conclusion because the more you research outwardly, the more you you discover you don't know and you go on and on and on multiplying your knowledge but getting nowhere. Um, if we want to get to the end of knowledge, Vedanta means end of knowledge, we need to turn back within and subside back within. That is the end of knowledge. We allow the mind to go outwards, knowledge is ever, un is ever unending. So materialism is one form of monism. Um, idealism is another form of monism. Everything is mental. That's the, uh, the, the basic contention of uh, material of, of, of idealism. And there are various other types of um, um, monism. There's neutral monism that says um, there's one reality behind the physical and the mental, and the, the both. Uh, so there's so many different ways. But most forms of monism uh, <clears throat> claim that. Um, but all is one, in one way or other, they claim that. Whereas Advaita says there is no all, there is only one. So Advaita is the ultimate monism, uh, the most radical form of monism. I hope that adequately answered that question. And there, there, another thing about Advaita, there are many uh, schools, there, there, there are many systems of philosophy in India that claim to be non-dualistic. For example, Kashmir Shaivism claims to be a non-dualistic um, school of philosophy. And in fact, they claim to be more non-dualistic than Advaita Vedanta. But actually, they're not non-dualistic because they accept the reality of the appearance. So long as you accept the reality of more than one thing, it's not non-duality. So though they take it to be non-duality, it is not non-duality in the same sense that Advaita is non-duality. Because the definition of non-duality in Advaita is ekam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. So they, so long if, if you give reality to anything other than the one, and what is that one? Tatvamasi, you are that. So if you give reality to anything other than your own being, your own fundamental awareness, I am, then it is not non-duality, or not non-duality in a pure sense. Just a quick question, Michael. I mean, in some of the earliest verses in the Veda and all that, it says, Ekam. Hmm. That there is only one, and uh, they don't really try to define it in the Nasadiya and so on. Yeah, uh, because it cannot be said of that that it's existence or that it's not existence, and you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not really say anything about it, and uh, they don't call it the self or anything of the sort. Uh, in fact, self is something which is created in that sense. You know, the, the sort of uh, the cognitive aspects. Uh, creation of the body and so on uh, so by one we're just meaning here the only thing which one means uh, say with a capital o is uh it's uh, the i amness or the self uh, and that's all there is yes and 
Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, Kashmir Shaivism, uh, I remember hearing Swami Lakshmanji once and just said, uh, you know, that all is Shiva, everything is just Shiva. And, uh, you know, because they call uh, that one or whatever, you know, it's the name. I mean, you know, you can yeah. give any name, everything is Shiva and all that. So I, it's a different approach. I, I, I'm not yeah. even 100% sure how one distinguishes between the two. But yeah, because I find that words are always problematic in talking about these things. So whenever people say monism, you know, there is a tendency for it to become something substantial, you know, to yeah. think of it as something substantial. When one says one, there's a tendency for it, you know, one says multiplicity and then one, the, the, automatically the way that language works and minds work is that it becomes like something in some way, you know, like a yeah. one, even though it's one without a second. Yeah, it's it's very problematic because I was looking at this thing of ikam and one. I said, look, I mean, what do they really mean? I mean, what is this one? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's undivided. Uh, you know, it, in all the forms, it's never changing. It's still one, no matter mm -hmm. how it appears to be. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this thing of ikam and uh, what one means in that sense, in terms of the, yeah. In verse 28 of um, Upadeshundia, uh, Bhagavan says, um, if one knows what the nature of oneself is, then anadi, ananta, akanda, satchidananda. The implication is, well, we can take it in two ways. Um, when he says, then, uh, anadi ananta kanda satchidananda. It can mean anadi ananta kanda satchidananda is alone what will exist. Or if one knows the nature of oneself, then one will know the nature of oneself is anadi ananta kanda satchidananda. It amounts to, to the same. Um, that is, this is, this is the closest that we can come in words to saying what is that one. It is sat chit ananda. Sat means it is pure existence. Chit, pure awareness. Ananda, pure happiness. And these are not three different things. These are three descriptions of the one thing. And this one thing that is described as sat chit ananda, it is anadi. It is without beginning. It is ananta, without end, without limit. It is infinite, in other words. Um, and it is a kanda. It's unbroken, undivided, unfragmented. So it is neither, it neither has any external limit, nor does it have any internal limit. Because if you divide something into many things, you've got, you're setting up so many internal limitations. It has no limitation of any kind whatsoever. It is one unbroken, infinite whole. This is the closest we can come in words. But he says here, if one knows what the nature of oneself is, so that the onus of or is on us to know what our real nature is, and we can know what our real nature is only by investigating ourselves and thereby being allowing ourselves to be swallowed by our own reality. Um, but as you say, words have their limitations. Whatever, no words can express this perfectly. That is why Bhagavan often said, the ultimate teaching is silence. Because the very nature of that one 
is silence, because there's nothing other than it. It's one without a second. Where is the scope for any noise, any sound? So it's very, nature is silence. But when Bhagavan talks about silence, when we talk about silence, people often think about vocal silence, keeping keeping quiet, not talking. Um, uh, when I was in Ramanashram recently, I was sitting on the um, on the south-facing side of Matputeshwara Temple on the, the raised um, uh, platform there. That's also the Pakaram around it. And there were various people there, and they were asking me various questions, and I was, um, I was, I was answering uh, whatever questions I was being asked. And after some time, one person came up to me and asked, who are you? So I just jokingly said, well, that's what I'm here to find out. He said, are you a, are you a spiritual teacher? I said, no. He said, then why are you talking so much? People come here to be silent. I, what can you say to such a person? But the reason I was talking was because people were asking me questions. I don't. I didn't go to Ramanashram to give lectures. I went there just to be with Bhagavan. But when people come and ask questions, naturally we have to answer. But many people who come to Ramanashram have a very superficial understanding of what Bhagavan's teaching is. Bhagavan did teach that the ultimate truth is silence. And that the ultimate truth can be conveyed only by silence. But the silence he's talking about is not just silence of keeping one's mouth shut. It's not just, it's not even the mental silence. It is the silence, the eternal silence of pure being. The silence that is never disturbed by any amount of um, mental activity or vocal activity. That eternal silence. All that Bhagavan taught us in words is pointing us back within, because it is only by going back within that we can, that we can subside in that sub silence, which is our own real nature, which is itself the ultimate reality. So words obviously have their limitations. The, the reason Bhagavan gave us teachings in words is to point us in the right direction. So we need to we need to follow those pointers by turning back within, and by turning back within, we will then subside into our source, which is itself the eternal silence of pure being. And only in that eternal silence, well, that eternal silence is the, the truth that reveals itself by just being itself. The next question is, um, yeah, it says, to clarify my question, I can sense the feeling of I. I pay attention to this sense. But what next after that? Is there another step? I'm wondering if the feeling of I is a thought and therefore not the thinker. If so, am I doing self-attention incorrectly? And then he says, sorry, looks like my first question didn't come through. So it's uh, being presented again. Can Michael please explain a little on what he means by attending to the self? Ah, right. This is the... Um, <clears throat> first, we need to think carefully about the words we use. When we talk about the feeling of I, are we just a feeling? I is, 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 is the pronoun that refers to ourself. 
Are we just a feeling? Obviously, we're something more than a feeling. We're something, we're, we're our own existence, our own awareness is the one thing which is indubitable. So we are something much more than just a feeling. Um, <clears throat> in order to understand what is meant by attending to ourself, we first need to understand what we are. We need to have at least a, a basic understanding of what we are. And in order to understand what we are, we also need to understand what we are not. Now we seem to be a person consisting of body, mind, um, well, to put it in, according to a technical analysis, we are, we are a form composed of five sheaths. We have a physical form of this body, a life that animates it, uh, um, the mind that functions within it, the intellect and the will. This is what we seem to be. So when we, when we refer to ourselves, when we take ourselves to be a person, we, all these five are implied. Um, but we are not actually any of these, because these are things that appear and disappear. This person that I seem to be, now I seem to be Michael. Michael appears in waking and dream. But even though he appears in both waking and dream, it's actually the body that is called Michael in the waking state is not the same body that is called Michael in dream state, because the Michael in dream may be injured, whereas the Michael in waking may be healthy. So it's not even the same, but it's basically it's the same identification. I'm still taking myself to be the same person. Um, but this, this person that I take myself to be disappears in sleep. But though this person disappears, I still exist in sleep because I'm very clearly aware I slept. I was in a state in which I wasn't aware of anything. I mean, I wasn't aware of, of anything. That means I, I wasn't aware of any phenomena. I wasn't aware of this body or mind that I now take myself to be. I wasn't aware of the objects of the world. I wasn't aware of thoughts, feelings, anything. I was just aware that, that, that the pure awareness I am, that alone is what what is experienced or what shines in sleep. So this person we take ourselves to be is not what we actually are. We are that which remains in the absence of this person, that which shines in sleep. In other words, this fundamental awareness, I am, that is what we actually are. So attending to ourselves means attending to this fundamental awareness, I am. Obviously, this awareness, I am, is not an object. It's not even the subject. It is the reality underlying the subject. To make it easier for us, to, to, um, we, 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 are, uh, we are advised to turn our attention away from all objects, back towards the subject, back towards one to whom all the objects appear. So who, to whom do all these things appear? To me. So who is that me? So. The me to whom all things appear is the subject. And, but when we, when we investigate the subject, what we're, as the subject, we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. But what is essential in the subject, the reality of the subject, is only that fundamental awareness I am. So we are moving our attention away from all the adjuncts, all that we take ourselves to be, this body and mind and thoughts and feelings, and uh, likes and dislikes and vasanas and so on, all these things are 
things known by us, they're objects known by us. So we have to move our attention away from these objects back towards ourselves, the one, the knower of all these things. So this is the, as far as words can point. We each need to read Bhagavan's teachings very carefully and attentively. We need to think about it to make sense of it. And we need to understand for ourselves what he means by self-attentiveness. If it's not entirely clear, try your best to attend to, if you like to call it a feeling eye, okay, attend to the feeling eye, but it's, it's something much more solid than any feeling. That, that is the, the one thing that is so certain is I am. That is, we, may, we can be unsure about all other things. We can, we can doubt all other things. But the one thing we can never doubt is our own existence. The one thing that is always existing and shining in our experience is I am. So we need to think carefully about this to make sense of this and try to attend to that which is shining within us as I. What is it? What is this awareness that is shining within us as I? The, the words can only go so far, words can only point, but we have, to, we have to think carefully about what Bhagavan has said. In, in the opening, um, uh, 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 the, the opening um, as, as, um, section of um, Vichara Sangraham, he expresses it very beautifully. Um, let me see if I can find it. Um, In section 1.1 of Vichara Sangraham, he says, um, How to investigate? If one asks, the reply is, Does this body, which is Jada, Jada means non aware, insentient, like a block of wood, come shining and behaving as I? It does not. Therefore, making the corpse body remain as a corpse and being without uttering I even by word or speech, whether physically or mentally, the implication, if one keenly investigates what is it that now shines as I, then in one's heart, a kind of spuripu, a fresh clarity, alone will appear itself to itself or oneself to oneself without sound as I am I. Um, this is a, if we pay close attention to these words, these are very nice pointers Bhagavan has given us. Making the corpse body remain as a corpse. That is, his body is just, it's, it's something insentient. It's like a block of wood. So, so it's no, it, it's, <clears throat> it, it's, it's just a corpse, um, a, a living corpse, we can say. So making it remain as corpse. In other words, discarding it as, as one would discard a corpse. And being without uttering I, even by word, so not even mentally or, or physically saying the word I, um, if one keenly investigates what is it but now shines as I. These, these are very, very beautiful words Bhagavan uses here. We need to keenly, uh, what he says in Tamil is, um, Ipodu nanena vilangavadu edu vendru kumeyai vicharital. That means, um, ipodu means now, nanena means as I, vilangavadu, what shines. 
So what is it but shines as a, what, what shines as I, edu, what is it but shines as I, kumeyai, kumeyai means very keenly, sharply investigate. So we need to look within very keenly to see what is it but is shining within us as I. Beyond this, words can't go. We each have to find the way ourselves. Sometimes when people persisted in asking Bhagavan, but Bhagavan, how to do it? Bhagavan would sometimes say, if the way were objective, it could be shown objectively. But this is not objective. Do you need to be shown the way inside your own home? You yourself have to find the way. So Bhagavan's words are pointing us in the right direction. We need to turn our attention to that back towards and, and keenly attend to that which is shining within us as I. That's as much as words can say. We, we, we each have to understand it for ourselves. This is why it is said, sravana, manana, and nididhyasana are all necessary. Sravana means, literally means hearing, but in this context it means paying close attention to what Bhagavan has said. Not necessarily all that is recorded in talks and, and places like, and books like that, because that's not the exact words of Bhagavan, but what he said in his own original writings. So we need to pay close attention to what he actually said, that is sravana. We need to think about it carefully in order to make sense of it. Like Bhagavan says, attend to yourself. Bhagavan says, uh, always keeping the mind fixed on oneself alone is called atmavichara. So what does he mean by always keeping one's mind fixed on oneself? We need to think about it. We need to make sense of it, understand what he's saying. And most important, that's the manana. Most important of all, nidityasana. We need to put it into practice. But we can't put it into practice unless we've understood it. That's why the sravana manana are very necessary. And the more we put it into practice, the more we will get from our sravana manana, because the more, the more we actually practice what Bhagavan is teaching us, the more meaningful his words will become to us. And the more meaningful they, they become to us, the deeper our, our manana will become. And the deeper our manana becomes, the deeper our, uh, our practice will become. So we, 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 the words can point us only to a certain extent. We've got to find out for ourselves. This is why Bhagavan called it vichara. Vichara means investigation. So how to investigate? We've got to, we have to investigate and find out for ourselves how to investigate. But we, we, we also need to follow the pointers given by Bhagavan. Otherwise, we, it's very easy to go in the wrong direction if we haven't understood Bhagavan correctly. That's why we, we often need to come back to Bhagavan's words again and again and verify our understanding and um, continue trying to make clearer and clearer sense of what he's saying and put it into practice more and more and more. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. If it's not an adequate answer, even Bhagavan couldn't, I mean, this is, I'm just pointing out what Bhagavan said. Even Bhagavan couldn't say more than this in words because ultimately we have to understand. He's pointing us clearly in the right direction. We have to understand the direction in which he's pointing us. For that, we need to pay close attention to his words. We need to think about them carefully and try our best to put them into practice. The next question is, 
How do you balance forgiveness and remaining connected with family members where there is feud and toxicity? At one level, I understand that forgiveness is absolutely necessary, but it is helpful to remain connected with a person when they are easily triggered because of their trauma, by our existence, and also when our capacity to love them unconditionally is hard. In this situation, what is the right thing to do other than surrender to Bhagwan to heal the rift? Human relations are very, very complex. Um, we, um, <clears throat> that is even forgiveness, we need to go beyond forgiveness. Because if you feel someone has done a wrong to you, you can forgive them. But why should we even feel that anyone has done any wrong to us? So we need to go beyond the state where we feel there's any need for forgiveness. We need to go beyond the idea that anyone has done any wrong to us. If, if someone has seemingly done wrong to us, okay, it's, it's, we are experiencing the fruit of our past karma, so let's not blame that person. And if, if someone does wrong to us, there may be so many reasons. They may have their own... It's um, if a person behaves in a obnoxious way or in a, in a, a disagreeable manner, in any sort of disagreeable manner, it's because they have problems of their own. Um, so often they may behave in a disagreeable manner towards us, but we are not the cause of their. We, we may be just a, they may be just lashing out because of their of other experiences they've had in life. So we, we need to be understanding, we need to be sympathetic, we need to be tolerant. We need to, yes, forgiving if you want to say forgiving, but it's better just to say, that is, we, we, we shouldn't hold anything against anyone. That is, none of us are perfect. We, we've all made mistakes in life. Who, which of us can hold up our hands and say, I've never made any mistake? We've all made mistakes. We've all sometimes whether intentionally or unintentionally, said things that hurt people. It's even if we don't want to hurt people, sometimes we, we may something, say something very innocently, but it may be taken quite differently by that person and they may be hurt by it. So we, we need to be very tolerant of people. But there are, some relationships don't work. However much we may try to patch up a relationship, sometimes it just doesn't work. So we need to accept things the way they are. We, um, we, we, should always, we should always keep the door open to people. If people want to come back to us and want to apologize or want to make up for whatever misunderstanding there was in the past, we should always keep the doors open. We should never hold grudges against people. However, much wrong they may seem to have done to us. We shouldn't hold grudges against them. We, we, must, be, we must be very tolerant, caring, and, and we must see ourselves in them. We must, whatever weaknesses are there in other people, those same weaknesses are there in us, maybe to a lesser extent, but we, we, should, we should see our own weaknesses in others, and then we will become far more tolerant of their weaknesses, of their failings. And we'll also become more tolerant of our own weaknesses and failings because we've all, we all, none of us are perfect. And um, if a relationship doesn't work out, it's, it's, 
it's almost invariably that, that it's it, it just the two the two people just don't gel together so we it's it's very easy to point a finger at the other and say you are to blame but we are as much to blame as them probably so we we just need to be very tolerant and caring and um and yes ready to forgive if, if, you, if you feel forgiveness is necessary but we should even go beyond the feeling that any, there's anything to forgive um people make mistakes we all make mistakes so it's just that's just the nature of life we try and get on with people as much as we can sometimes if a relationship doesn't work we shouldn't we shouldn't um we should just accept the way it is Some, sometimes um there may be um sometimes you may have a falling out with a person and, and we we're ready to patch up if that person is ready to patch up if they're not ready to patch up we just need to accept the, the situation as it is human relationships are extremely complicated there's so many factors involved and so many reasons why people behave in the way they behave so we just need to keep an open heart and open mind and um accept things the way they are and um try to be kind by to people however unkind they may seem to have been to us i mean there's no perfect answer to these things we just have to we just have to be kind and compassionate and caring and understanding and sympathetic and empathetic and whatever and beyond this what can we say this isn't a guaranteed formula but you'll be able to patch up all relationships some relationships they're just not destined to be patched up it's just the way it is Michael, there's just one thing because all of us come across every human being comes across so many relationships and so yeah. many problems in relationships and sometimes people can become very violent and harmful or abusive sometimes you know yeah. there's love caring compassion yeah, yeah and one of the things is which i think perhaps many of us have struggled with or at least some of us that compassion and kindness are very very important i mean that's the central thing it's yeah. the most important yeah. thing is yeah. to love but it has to come with a kind of clarity and boundaries because sometimes yeah. if the clarity and discrimination are not there you know uh, a certain kind of uh, compassion becomes a kind of sentimentality and we end up doing more harm than good it's like yeah. even with a child you know with a child and a mother yeah. Uh, sort of real love is uh, doing what's also the right thing at that time for yeah. a child. Uh, otherwise, you end up spoiling the child and yeah. uh, actually doing harm. Yeah. So I think this kind of discrimination uh, is very yeah. the clarity. Of, and I think it's quite difficult that at least I have found it quite difficult. It, it, it is difficult because, yes, there are situations where we need to set boundaries. But particularly if we're following the spiritual path, our inclination is always to subside and subsidence so we tend to let people walk over us but that often isn't good for a person we allow to walk over us so um yeah we we and none of us are perfect we all make mistakes and um and as ramakrishna paramahamsa said god exists in all but for that reason you don't go and embrace the tiger so there are certain people they're just by nature toxic and sometimes it's it's 
though we may feel empathy and compassion for them in our heart, it's necessary to keep a distance because it's, um, as you say, we need to sometimes set boundaries for the good of all concerned, not only for our good, but for the good of others also. This is the classic case if somebody is about to uh, kill a whole bunch of people, then do you, uh, I mean, there's always the classic case. It, it comes up also in the Buddhist uh, things or the Bodhisattva, that you are there to, for the welfare of all beings, save all beings and so on. But if somebody is going to attack a whole bunch of people and kill them, what are you going to do? You know, you have to stop them somehow, uh, you know, but, but selflessly, uh, that is the main thing, without any hostility or real will for their own good. Um, yeah, it's a tricky... The next question... But, uh, another thing is, action is always imperfect. There's no such thing as a perfect action. Even, even Rama had to seemingly go against Dharma by uh, shooting um, Bali from behind which is seemingly an action a warrior shouldn't shoot another warrior from behind, but it was the only way for Dharma to be established. So, yeah, life is life is very complicated, but often there's no perfect solution. We, we Ultimately, we all muddle through life trying our best to do what is right, and no doubt failing many times. And the next question is, uh, are thoughts caused by prarabdha, that is destiny? Um, there actions of mind, speech and body are driven by two forces, by our own vasanas and also by that our own vasanas means our own will and by the will of God. That is, God makes us do certain actions that are necessary in all. It's not prarabdha that is making us do, it is God. That is, Bhagavan is, if we pay close attention to what Bhagavan wrote in the first sentence of the note he wrote for his mother, he says, avarabha prarabdha prakaram. That means, in accordance with the prarabdha of each one, adhakarnavan. Adhikarnava means he who is for that. That's referring to God or Guru, the ordainer of the fruit of action. Angangirandu, um, being there, there. That means being in each place, implying being in the heart of each one of us, Artavipan will cause to act. So he doesn't say it's the prarabdha that causes us to act. God makes us act in accordance with the prarabdha. So <laughs> certain actions of mind, speech, and body are necessary in order for our prarabdha to unfold. So those actions of mind, speech, and body that we need to do in order to experience our prarabdha, those actions will be made to do by God. That does not mean that all the actions we do by mind, speech, and body are actions we're made to do by God, because if that were the case, there'd be no such thing as agamya. Agamya means the actions we do in accordance with our own will that bear fruit. If all our actions were actions we're made to do by God, then it's God who should experience the fruit of the actions, not us. So obviously, that is not what the law of karma means. So yes, some, some uh, actions of mind, speech, and body, in other words, some thoughts, some words, some uh, bodily actions, are in accordance with uh, um, uh Prarabdha, that is the actions we need to do in order for the prarabdha to unfold. So those actions we're made to do. 
but many actions that we do in accordance, we, we are made to do in accordance with prarabdha, we are also simultaneously doing in accordance with our vasanas. That is a, a simple example I often give to explain this. If, you're, if it's your destiny to be a doctor, in order to be a doctor, you have to study hard, you have to pass the exams and so on and so forth. So those actions that are necessary in order to become a doctor, you will be made to do those actions. So you'll be made to study, to pass the exams and so on and so forth. But most people who, who, who become doctors also want to become doctors for one reason or another. They may want to become doctors because they think being a doctor is a caring profession. They can take care of people. They can do good to people. They may think... Uh, being a doctor is a prestigious job. You get social prestige by being a doctor. So that may be their reason. Or they may think they can earn a lot of money by being a doctor. That may be their reason. But whatever be the reason, most people who study hard and become doctors do so because they want to become doctors for one reason or another. So though they may be made to do those actions by God in accordance with their prarabdha, they're also being made to do those actions by their own vasanas. So just because an action is an action we're made to do by God doesn't necessarily absolve us from responsibility for that action because it, that action may, in most cases, will also be driven by our own vasanas. But this, this question... The, the thing about the law of karma, Bhagavan has taught us the general principles. We need to understand the general principles, but we don't have to dwell on this too much. People ask, how do I know whether this action is in accordance with prarabdha or not? Well, time alone will tell whether it's in accordance with prarabdha, but that shouldn't concern us. What, what should concern us, that, that is the, why Bhagavan taught us the law of karma, as he taught it. But whatever we may do, we cannot change what we are destined to experience. What we are destined to, as he said in the later sentences of that note to his mother, what is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. This is certain. So, Whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Whatever is not going to happen is not going to happen. So we shouldn't concern ourselves with what is happening. We shouldn't concern ourselves with actions. We should concern ourselves with who am I, the one who has risen feeling I am doing this action. I am experiencing this result of action. We need to investigate ourselves. That is the, the point. So if we understand but, if, but whatever effort we make, we cannot change what is destined to be experienced. That will, will reduce the enthusiasm which we, with which we normally jump outwards, trying to achieve this, to avoid that, and so on. So if we understand it's all happening, everything is happening according to prarabdha. We cannot experience anything we're not destined to experience. We cannot avoid experiencing what we are destined to experience. So the only wise use of our freedom is to turn our attention within to find out who am I and thereby to surrender ourselves, surrender our mind, speech and body entirely to Bhagavan.
The next one is, is it the same source which impels prarabdha karmas and the appearance of the first self-formation? The source doesn't impel anything. The source is our own reality, I am, which is pure being. <clears throat> All impetus starts, but that is the first impulse, the first rising is the rising of ourself as ego. Once we rise as ego, um, the, the very nature of ego is to rise, stand and flourish by identifying itself with the body and then uh, constantly seeking things other than itself. So um, karma is a consequence of our rising as ego. And uh, karma begins with agamya, the actions we do under the sway of our vishaya vasanas. Those actions bear fruit. The fruit of those actions are what are selected by God for us to experience as pararabdha. So it all originates from our rising as ego. And the whole thing can be brought to an end by our putting an end to the rising of ego. We can put an end to the rising of ego only by turning within and knowing ourselves as we actually are. I hope that adequately answered that question. That is, the source of ego is our, our real nature, what we actually are, pure satchit. And ego is in turn the source of everything else. But as Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludnaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. That is, what ego sees as everything, it's seeing itself as all these things. So ego itself is everything. Therefore, investigating what this is, is giving up everything. That is, if we investigate ego, ego will subside and dissolve back into its source. And in the absence of ego, everything else will cease to exist along with it, because everything else exists only in the view of ego. So the source of all things, the source of ego is Atmasarupa, Brahman, our real nature, pure awareness, such it. The source of everything else is ego. Uh, the last question is, uh, did Bhagavan ever speak about the gunas in his writings or discourses? Yeah, yes, he sometimes refers to gunas. Um, uh, for example, in Nana, he refers to, um, he says, by of all the uh, niyamas, of all the observances or restrictions, the best is mitta sattvika ahara niyama. Mitta sattvika ahara niyama means, um, uh, mitta means moderate, implies moderate quantities. Sattvika means what is conducive to sattva or beingness or purity or parity. Uh, ahara means what is taken in. It primarily means food, but it can also mean what's taken in through the five senses, but that's not generally the meaning given. It's usually ahara is taken to mean the food, but we can also extend its meaning to include what's taken in through the five senses. And niyama means the uh, re restriction. So the restriction of taking only moderate quantities of sattvic food, food that is conducive to sattva, 
will increase the sattva guna of the mind, and which will and will thereby help in vichara because obviously the the three gunas are sattva, rajas, and tamas. Sattva literally means beingness. That is the the, the quality of calmness, clarity, and so on, and purity, and so on. Um, <clears throat> rajas means activity, restlessness, and tamas means darkness, dullness, um, uh, <clears throat> the, the clouding of the mind with desires, and so on. So, um, as he says in, in Vichara Sangram, he gives uh, an he, he says the um, just like it is, um, <clears throat> ju just like it is difficult to separate the fine threads of a silk cloth with a blunt iron bar, and um, just as it's difficult to find a subtle object, a, a very minute object that is lying on the ground in the flickering light of a la of a lamp. So also, it's difficult to do this atmavichara in a mind that is uh, cloudy with tamas. That's compared to the blunt iron bar that you're trying to separate the fine threads of silk with, or a mind that is um, agitated by rajas. That's like the lamp flickering in the wind. So a sattvic state of mind is conducive to uh, atmavichara. That doesn't mean that we, oh, I can't do up my vichara because my mind isn't sattvic enough. We shouldn't come to that conclusion because the best way to, to bring about a sattvic state of mind is to practice up my vichara because in up my vichara, what are we attending to? We're attending to our own being, sat. So the more we attend to our being, the more we hold on to our being, the more we thereby subside in our being, and that is the state of sattva. So the best way to bring about a sattvic state of mind is atmavichara. And a sattvic state of mind is in turn very conducive to atmavichara. But that even when our mind is not in such a sattvic state, when it's more, when it's in a duller state or in a more agitated state, we should still try to hold on to our being. I hope that adequately answers that question. Thank you very much, Michael. And uh, thank you very much uh, <laughs> with your cold and cough and so on. Oh, for... thank, thank Bhagavan. He kept my cough under control. Sometimes I, I'm still getting very bad cough, but they've... Um, yeah, it seems to be a little better now. A few days ago, they found that um, one of the bacteria was not responding to the antibiotics, so they changed the antibiotics. So it, that, that seems to be helping. Glad. Well, wish, I'm sure that we wish you all a very that all of us. Very well, all that this is the nature of the body. Uh, the sickness comes and the health comes. They alternate. It's just that this is the. Um, the impermanent nature of the body, so nothing to worry about too much. Yes. It'll go on oscillating like this until one day the body itself will go away. Thank you, Michael. Okay, right. Thank you. Namo Ramana.
नमो भगवते श्री रमणा ओ नमो भगवते श्री रमणा ओ नमो भगवते श्री रमणा